Aortic pathologies are among the most devastating and worrying conditions that we are likely to encounter as emergency clinicians. Two that we really must understand are aortic dissections and ruptured AAAs. These two conditions are at risk of being confused, but they present differently and may require different management by us as paramedics. With a high mortality between the two conditions, many of whom die during transfer or whilst awaiting inter-hospital transfers, these are clearly two conditions we need to be confident in. A huge part in treating these patients lies in the rapid recognition and conveyance to the most appropriate specialist centre, and as ambulance staff, that is firmly our responsibility. So if you don't know the difference between a dissection and an aneurysm, if you think AAA can present with bilateral blood pressure changes, and you don't know your Turner syndrome from your Marfan syndrome, then this is the podcast for you. It's full of things you just a ought to know. Let's get started. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name is Josh, I'm a specialist paramedic in critical care. My name's Simon, I'm an advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine. And my name's Alex, I'm a paramedic operations officer. So this month we're going to be talking about aortic emergencies and particularly we're going to be talking about aortic dissection and abdominal aortic aneurysm and uh, when they rupture. So Alex, why, why are we talking about these? I think there's something which people tend to uh, to mix up uh, the, the presentation of the two. And there's also other aspects, things like BP differentials, which sometimes can be quite confusing. So we wanted to clarify exactly what we're looking for in both of these conditions and just make sure that people are really able to recognise both dissection and aneurysm. Yeah, excellent. It's definitely something that I could benefit uh, learning a little bit more about. So do you want to start us off uh, by talking a little bit about the anatomy of the aorta? Obviously, we're talking about the the aorta. Um, Now, the aorta has two main segments, generally speaking, the thoracic and the abdominal aorta. The thoracic aorta is then further subdivided into three different parts, the ascending aorta, the aortic arch, and the descending aorta. The ascending aorta begins at the aortic valve and ends just before the innominate artery or the brachiocephalic trunk. It's approximately five centimetres long. That then becomes the aortic arch as it arches over into what then becomes the descending aorta. And the aortic arch has three major branches, the brachiocephalic trunk, the left common carotid artery, and the left subclavian artery. And if you're looking at a diagram going from left to right, those are, those are in order, brachiocephalic, left common carotid, and left subclavian. The arch of the aorta runs slightly posterior and to the left of the trachea and then ends following the left subclavian artery, after which it becomes the descending thoracic aorta. That carries on until more or less until it hits uh, around T12 and passes through the diaphragm, at which point it becomes the abdominal aorta. The abdominal aorta moves slightly posteriorly up to the posterior wall of the abdominal cavity and terminates in a bifurcation at the iliac arteries. So Alex has just described the regions of the aorta. But when we're talking about the pathologies that we're going to discuss later on in this podcast, it's really important that we understand the layers of the aorta. So taking a cross section of the vessel, we're going to start from the inside out. So the innermost section we need to talk about is the lumen. That's the internal region of the aorta where the blood flows through. 
The next stage out is the tunica intima. This is made up of a single layer of epithelial cells and provides a smooth surface for the blood to flow through. The next layer out is the tunica media, and just like it sounds, this is the middle layer of the aorta, and it's made up of several layers of smooth muscle surrounding the lumen of the aorta. And this is where we find the elastic tissue that gives the aorta its flexibility, as Alex described earlier. And the final layer is the tunica externa, sometimes referred to as the adventitia. This is the outermost layer of the aorta, and it's formed mainly of collagen, which keep the vessel attached and anchored to the various surrounding tissues and organs. Now we know a little bit about the layers of the aorta, I think it would be good if we try to understand a little bit about each of the pathologies that we're going to talk about. So Simon, do you want to talk us through aortic dissection? Aortic dissection uh, is where there is a tear in the smooth layer of endothelial tissue inside the aorta, which is called the tunica intima. This internal layer, when it breaches, allows blood to begin to dissect the middle layer of the vessel, which is the tunica media. As the dissection grows, more blood can enter this layer and effectively split it apart. Now, depending on where this dissection occurs, we will get various different symptoms, which we'll talk about later. But the dissection can either go in an antegrade direction down towards the abdomen, or it can go in a retrograde direction, which is back up towards the heart. The most common type of dissection is an ascending, accounting for roughly 70% versus 15 to 20% of descending and 10% in the arch of the aorta. And dissection can have some quite serious complications and that's largely related to the exact location of where the dissection is taking place and the expansion of the dissection up and around other blood vessels. So it can involve the subclavian artery or renal arteries and cause significant ischemia and associated symptoms with the organs and organ systems distal to those feeder arteries. Something that could be quite common is stroke symptoms or neurological symptoms with an aortic dissection, which we'll come on to talk uh, about a little bit later. But that's when the dissection is involving some of the major branches of the brachiocephalic trunk of the aorta. Yeah, you're right, Josh. And if the dissection is large enough, it or, or if it gets left untreated, it can actually rupture, which is obviously really bad news. And it can result in catastrophic bleeding into different body cavities, depending on the exact location of the dissection. So an aortic rupture could bleed and cause a hemopericardium, which would cause syncope and sudden death uh, very quick, obviously sudden death very quickly. It can bleed into the lungs, causing a left or right hemothorax. It can cause a mediastinal hemorrhage, compression of the pulmonary trunk, as you said. And also rarely in abdominal or descending aortic dissection, you can also get intraperitoneal hemorrhage or, or esophageal hemorrhage, which would present as a fairly significant and uh, non, non-self-resolving uh, hematemesis. So because of those symptoms, obviously a a ruptured aortic dissection has a a shockingly high mortality rate. It's around 80% mortality rate if a dissection ruptures. So that is obviously something that we uh, are quite desperate to avoid. So ruptures, one worrying process, completely agree, Alex. And actually, it doesn't even have to rupture to become 
really, really serious. So the dissection, if it can come back in a retrograde direction towards the heart, it can actually cause a cardiac tamponade, which can then cause obstructive shock, which, uh, as we know in itself, can then also be really life-threatening. So it doesn't even have to, to tear to cause significant problems with mortality. It's a really serious condition, as you quite rightly said. And one of the, the issues, with, if it does cause tamponade, is, is uh, the, the treatment options for that are uh, virtually nil. So a lot of the texts wouldn't even recommend a, a pericardiocentesis, uh, which is obviously sticking a needle into the pericardium to relieve that blood because the, the pressure in the aorta and the pressure of that bleeding is so high, the, the patient will just bleed out from that. Yeah, the the literature that I that I read in preparation for this actually suggested that um, needle pericardiocentesis can actually be associated again with sudden death in aortic dissection as well. So yeah, it's definitely not something that uh, that that would be recommended. And like you say, there's not a huge amount of treatment options, so it's pretty bad news. So that's dissection in a nutshell, and obviously we're talking about aortic pathology as a you know, as a, as a sort of parcel. So shall we move very quickly on to aortic aneurysm and briefly cover that? Yeah, so because they're different, aren't they? And it's really important that we understand that they are different because there's a risk. And definitely in my experience, uh, these often get lumped together by people who perhaps don't recognize the difference between them. So aortic aneurysm occurs when there's an enlargement or a ballooning of the aorta. And uh, the UK National Screening Programme suggests that AAA or abdominal aortic aneurysm, which is the most common form of aortic aneurysm, has a prevalence of around 1.3%. So that's about 80,000 people in England. And complications of them account for around 6,000 deaths a year, 20% of whom die before they've even reached hospital and 50% before they're able to reach a form of specialist care. Yeah, and one of the one of the interesting things about aortic aneurysm is that there's not a huge amount of agreement on what really constitutes an aneurysm. There's the, a the scarcity of data on normal aortic diameter, which they think might be due to differing uh, imaging modalities, but there's probably other reasons behind that as well. So we're not really sure how big an aorta or a normal aorta is. But by common convention, more than anything, aortic dilation is considered uh, an aorta which is larger than the 95th percentile for the patient's sex, body size, and age. So that's that's dilation. And then when you're talking about the actual aneurysm itself, you can have a, a generalized widening of the aorta, which is called ectasia, and that is a widespread over more than 50% of the aorta will be will be um, enlarged in ectasia. Aneurysm is quite distinct from that as it is a localized and what they call a fusiform dilation, which is like a, if you imagine a balloon inflated in the middle of a tube, that's, that's what they call a fusiform dilation. And that is around greater than or equal to 50% of the expected diameter. It's another one of those areas where there's not really any consensus between what is dilation and what is an aneurysm. So it's, a, it's an interesting presentation. And as you said, abdominal aortic aneurysm is the most common presentation. In fact, 95% of them are below the renal arteries, which 
we think is most likely due to lower levels of elastin and collagen in the tunica media in in that middle layer of uh, of the arterial uh, tissue so you're more disposed in in the area below the renal arteries you're more disposed to get an aneurysm and as we discussed with aortic dissection aneurysm can also have um, some uh, complications associated with it as well so most significantly rupture the same as same as in uh, as in dissection but aneurysm specifically can also be linked to the formation of emboli that's not so much of an issue with a fusiform but other types of aneurysm in particular like a berry aneurysm uh, can be very heavily associated with emboli formation so it's worth bearing in mind that if you have a patient presenting with an aneurysm there is a potential that they are going to have emboli and may have associated symptoms there and they're probably going to have embolus in other parts uh, of their circulatory system and another complication that can be associated with just the increased diameter really is that it can press on surrounding structures and as you said 95% of aneurysms uh, are in the abdominal aorta and 95% of those are below the renal arteries now in in that area they are quite close to the vena cava so you can imagine that a significant amount of ballooning in the abdominal aorta there will actually cause compression of the vena cava so that can cause uh, issues with the return of blood to circulation so so alex can you just explain what the as simply as you can what the the difference in physiology is between the dissection and an aortic aneurysm what's actually happening to the aorta and like i say put it simply because i'm uh, i'm a hemis paramedic so if i can't stick a tube in it or give it ketamine then it doesn't really exist to me so uh, as simply as you can please mate. <laughs> that's fine yeah i'll try and make it nice and simple for you mate so uh, so uh, as we were just saying a uh, uh, an aneurysm is a ballooning of the aorta. So there's a weakening of the vessel wall in a localized area that allows it to balloon out and increase the internal capacity of the of the aorta. And that's quite distinct to a dissection, which as Simon said earlier, that is due to a tear in the tunica media, that smooth endothelial layer. And the high pressure inside the aorta allows the blood to force its way inside and essentially separate that intermural space and split apart the tunica intima and the tunica media yeah so hopefully that's a bit clearer for people so now let's move on to history taking simon where should we start yeah so we're going to talk about risk factors to start with so um both of these have really similar risk factors to each other so we are potentially going to be looking for atherosclerosis and hardening of the arteries we're going to be looking at patients who are smokers there is a direct link in the literature that shows that the number of years you've been smoking for considerably increases your risk of developing atherosclerosis and heart disease. We know this. Um, and also, therefore, potentially the development of, of both aneurysms and dissections because of the weakening effects that it causes. Hypertension is another big one. Obviously, uh, increased pressure on the walls of the arteries is going to either dissect or it could cause the um, ballooning that Alex mentioned earlier. Males are much more common than females, about five times more likely to have uh, an aneurysm or a dissection. And age is another compounding factor, again, due to how our arteries develop over time. So over 60 years is much more common. Um, Now, there is a caveat to that, that if we look at patients, younger patients that have collagen and elastin problems. Alex, did you want to talk about about those? 
Yeah, so when when you're talking about the the Chinica media in particular, that is where um, a lot of elastin and collagen and those sort of things there, which which give the blood vessel its elasticity and its recoil, that that's the layer in which those are affected. And as you, as you said, Simon, you know, as you as you get older, particularly above sixty years, you do get a degeneration in the collagen and the elastin, which is why older people are more predisposed to to these conditions affecting affecting their blood vessels but particularly the aorta and also genetic conditions such as uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or Marfan syndrome just because of the the effects that, that those conditions have on um, on collagen and elastin and those connective tissues as well as Turner syndrome although Turner syndrome I believe the risk there is more to do with the fact that they have co-action of the aorta uh, and, and therefore will have increased um, aortic pressures. You, you can also have mosaic Turner syndrome which is a genetic issue almost of unknown extent so uh, some whereas patients generally with turner syndrome will present with physiological findings of the syndrome which you may pick up some patients may know they have mosaic turner syndrome and be reasonably uh, asymptomatic but uh, there's there's an there's an unknown risk for them so they'll generally have various follow-ups and things to uh, examine their aorta they'll have been having echocardiograms basically throughout their life so uh, so that's something to, to bear in mind that may not be as dramatic as the presentation of turner syndrome okay oh that's that's interesting maybe maybe we should uh, do a uh, do a broadcast on that in the future um oh, it's so monumentally rare so no <laughs> yeah <laughs> fair enough um so one thing i did want to go back to quickly i don't want to harp on too much about it but i, I simon you you just sort of mentioned smoking there uh, I, I don't think we can emphasize quite how strongly the link is between smoking and aortic pathology. Smoking directly contributes to arteriosclerosis. It reduces levels of elastin and collagen in the tunica media, which, as we said, predisposes you to these conditions by reducing its elasticity and recoil. And it also contributes to atherosclerosis development, obviously that development of sort of sludgy... um, sludgy fatty deposits in in the arteries and and plaque buildup inside the arteries which increases arterial pressures and also smoking is a major risk factor for chronic hypertension and a major factor in developing COPD both of which independently increase the risk of aortic dissection and aneurysm so I really don't think we can can harp on too much about how prevalent the link is between smoking and these aortic problems it's it's very very clear in literature this is a really good point and actually it's one of the reasons it is so important that we take every opportunity to give health promotion advice to try and encourage people to stop smoking because there's just so many pathologies that are worsened by or, or, or your risk is increased by the fact you're smoking and I think most people know this nowadays but you know sometimes just a little bit of reinforcement uh, by by every time they see a healthcare professional can sometimes just help help swing their their opinion. I'm uh, I'm normally all one for health promotion and I'm the first to talk about teachable moments uh, when they're presenting to us as emergency care practitioners but I don't think it's too uh, ludicrous an idea to suggest that perhaps whilst the patient is actively dissecting may 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 not be yeah, yeah, may yeah, not yeah. be the do best you, time to suggest Do you know what you not. could have done to avoid this? <laughs> not the most helpful comment, is it? No. Yeah, I think yeah. while your hypertensive shocked patient is collapsed on the floor, maybe not a good time to say you should yeah. have had that last fact. Yeah. <laughs> that that will teach you. But yeah. in every every other element of our practice then uh, then yes, this this yeah. is this is the reason why health promotion is so important. Yes, absolutely. 
The the only other little things that we didn't cover in terms of um, stuff to look for in the patient's history uh, is is family history. So a first degree relative that has, that has suffered one of these conditions will again um, give is a, is a fairly big red flag for the potential for either dissection or or uh, aneurysm. Pregnancy as well due to blood vessel changes and any patient who's had anything really which is going to increase their aortic pressure. So an aortic valve replacement, a bicuspid aortic valve, if they've had a cabbage, uh, a coarction of the aorta or, or anything that's going to increase uh, aortic pressures really. There's two really interesting points there, Alex. So firstly about the family history. It's actually a really massive risk factor. I didn't sort of realise how significant it is. and. On another interesting front, it's part of the uh, aortic dissection decision rule, which is actually something that emergency clinicians are starting to look at using in EDs to exclude clinically with some labs a dissection. Now, it's not been validated yet, apart from in one study, and there are still some questionable methods within that study because it was retrospective and, and observational so it needs a lot more work but they are looking at the possibility of using this this risk score which you can find on md calc along with a normal d-dimer to exclude a aortic dissection but as i said it's not been proven yet so um, it, it can't really be used currently apart from in research that has a really strong link to higher risk scores if you have a family history which i think is is something we should really consider i don't think we necessarily consider family history enough uh, as a red flag for for a lot of diseases yeah i think you're right i certainly in my in my practice in the past i have probably not given enough consideration to to family history and it's yeah it is a really really big part of this and actually Everything that I have read, I think this will lead us quite nicely into, you know, how these patients will actually present to us. But the most important factor in everything that I've read about both of these conditions, the most important factor is is actually the history of the condition and also the patient's own history. One uh, one final uh, risk factor that I think is relevant to mention, mainly because I can make a shameless self plug, is uh, is cocaine abuse and cocaine toxicity, because of the the acute uh, hypertension that can develop as a result of that. Uh, and if you want to learn more about that, you can find that in episode eleven of General Broadcast: Acute co- Cocaine Toxicity. I think one thing you you did just mention, Alex, as well, is pregnancy that we sort of um, just listed, but actually, I. Th- I think a lot of people, when when we think of pregnancy and getting sudden onset chest pain, we think of PE. And whilst obviously PE is increased risk in pregnancy, and we do need to consider it as a differential, pregnancy itself, because of hormonal changes, does affect or can affect vasculature in the aorta and can present the dissection. So I think we need to uh, need to think about our differentials. That you know PE is not the only chest pain or sudden onset chest pain presentation that could occur in pregnancy and we need to think of a aortic dissection as well is that so is that because obviously hormonal changes make uh, a lot of the collagen and elastin more elastic to compensate for the baby's head to to go through the birth canal is that is that the same principle just it, it works everywhere and makes everything a little bit more stretchy 
Effectively, yes. Um, so you get remodeling because of the hormones, which obviously is a good thing around the pelvic area because we need to, uh, at some point, deliver a baby. Uh, it's normally in the third trimester. But obviously, if those hormonal changes affect the elastic tissues in other areas, then we can get some detrimental effects as well. Right then, I think we should move on to how these patients are actually going to present to us uh, as clinicians, starting with, uh, I think, with dissection, because certainly to me, dissection is uh, is the more concerning of the two. The RC, According to the RCEM, um, dissection will typically, 85% of cases, present as a very sudden, acute and maximal onset chest pain, which is commonly described as sharp, as opposed to the more typically cardiac ache or, or sort of general chest tightness. The pain may be present in the anterior chest in 70 to 80% of cases if the ascending aorta or the aortic arch is involved. And interestingly, back pain occurs in around 50% of all dissections, regardless of whether they're type A or type B or, or any other classification. There's a few different classification methods. That pain may also move as the as the dissection develops, which is thought to be due to a sort of peripheral extension of the dissection from the primary intimal tear. So as as that false lumen expands and more blood enters and, and, and the dissection expands, that pain can actually change. And the the classic symptom that everyone gets taught about, the the sort of tearing into scapular pain, it, interestingly, was only found in around 50% of patients presenting with acute dissection. Uh, certainly from the things that I've read, I think the most sensitive or, or as sensitive as you can get uh, for or for dissection symptoms is patients being able to pinpoint the moment at which it started. So very acute onset, maximal pain, I think um, through most of the research is, is the the most sensitive for a dissection. And often the patient will be able to tell you exactly what they were doing at the point the pain started. Yeah, it's also worth bearing in mind as well that actually 5 to 15% of aortic dissections present with no pain at all, or the pain can actually resolve. If there's if there's a temporary halt in the expansion of the dissection, or if there's a reduction within pressures in the aortic wall, the pain can actually resolve as well. So that, again, is something to bear in mind. Simon, I didn't know if you had anything you wanted to add in terms of the sort of presentation for dissection. Yeah, so my experience is that the really severe sudden onset worst ever pain is a relatively common feature, although as you quite rightly said, it, it doesn't always have to be. And I think it's really important what you just said about the fact that the pain can fully resolve as well, which for patients that have got sudden onset chest pain and then maybe had a syncopal episode, especially if they're over the age of 60, we really need to think about this as a differential. You talked about migrating pain, so pain that um, can can move. So if, if a chest pain is moving or there is pain both above and below the diaphragm, we really need to think about this as a differential. They've got quite good positive likelihood ratios. And then we need to think about other associated symptoms. So this is going to be completely dependent upon where the dissection is starting and effectively where it's dissecting to. So we could get a combination of stroke symptoms if it affects the arteries that bifurcate off the aorta. Uh, and then obviously we'll get a lack of blood supply to the brain. We can present it with sudden onset stroke symptoms. 
also, likewise, if it goes downwards into the um, abdomen, we can be presented with lower limb neurological symptoms or ischemia of the gut. So we could get a, a mesenteric infarction at the same time. Something I've always been taught is uh, sudden onset chest pain with any peripheral limb paresthesia or peripheral limb neurology is definitely, so you've got to consider aortic dissection until proven otherwise. I'd go as far to say any sudden onset chest pain with any neurology is that because it can go up as well as down. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. If it goes back into the heart, it can dissect the coronary arteries, which obviously supply blood to the heart itself. And therefore, we can actually get symptoms of MI, which this is where it gets really difficult to differentiate because you can actually get STEMI patterns on the ECG, which is really worrying because we're then going to go along and go, well, let's give some aspirin, let's give some GTN potentially to this hypertensive dissection because patients can be hypertensive with the dissection. And actually, we could massively confound the issue. It's a really challenging differential. Yeah, up to 30% of patients presenting with aortic conditions can have a normal ECG, but more than 40% of them will have ST segment and or T wave changes. So like you say, yeah, so it's... um, it can be a really confusing presentation. I think other other little signs, there was something else that I really wanted to talk about as well. One of the so so often they will present with hypertension, as as you might expect. And I think you covered most of the others. Diastolic murmur over the aortic area is another thing, and a widened pulse pressure. But the classic symptom which people seem to remember and, and certainly I found confusing as, as a student is the differential blood pressure. I'm sure everyone will remember, you know, that during your lectures, hearing about differential blood pressures and a differential blood pressure of more than 20 millimeters of mercury is a, is a significant difference. And therefore, the patient is having an aortic dissection. But actually, the literature and the research shows that that is not really the case. It's, it's not a very specific finding. A pulse deficit alone so that is a weakened or absent radial pulse on one side was found to be more suggestive of a dissection than either a differential bp or and i i'm quite surprised by this i'm not really sure i understand this myself but a pulse deficit alone is more sensitive for dissection than a combination of differential BP plus pulse deficit. And in fact, several studies have found that up to 20% of uh, ambulatory patients in the emergency department have a systolic or diastolic interarm difference of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury anyway. So the presence of a bilateral blood pressure difference can heighten suspicion in the correct clinical context, but it is not a reliable, infallible sign uh, to to lean on in terms of um, presentation for this condition. I fully agree with that. I think it's one of those things. I think this is a, a thing that we need multiple pieces of the puzzle to put together to query something. I don't think there is any one sign in the history or examination that is like definitive, is really specific and sensitive to 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 diagnose this condition so i think yeah we 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 need to be careful when we think about 
differential blood pressure and various things is as Alex quite rightly said they're really really non-specific and they can be they can be present in patients that don't have any cardiovascular disease only other thing I'd add with pulse deficits is it's not just between the radials from side to side you can get deficits between up and below so consider in these patients with chest pain doing a femoral pulse and looking between the radials and the femorals for pulse deficits uh, yeah, sorry, Simon. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting uh, bit, which actually I, I completely forgot to mention. So thank you for that. The last symptom I think we should cover when we're talking about dissection is hypotension, which is a very late sign, which can be caused by massive hemothorax, hemorrhage generally if there is a rupture, and also consider that there may be a large volume of blood in the false lumen as that dissection has, has progressed and that false lumen is containing more and more blood that can cause a reduction in circulatory volume as well. Yeah, completely right, Alex. And finally, hypertension can also be caused from a patient who's got obstructive shock due to uh, pericardial effusion that's formed and then obviously a resultant tamponade, which is one of the most common reasons people die with uh, an aortic dissection. Yeah, the, these these patients are going to be very sick and they're going to present that way as well. They're going to be very, very obviously poorly. Which is quite a distinction and leads us quite nicely into aneurysm. Josh, do you want to tell us a little bit about aortic aneurysms? Sure. And so as well as making the distinction between aortic dissection and aortic aneurysm pathology, I think it's also important to say there's a distinction between a AAA an aortic abdominal aneurysm and the emergency complications that accompany those. So most patients with an aortic aneurysm, a, a AAA, are not aware that they've got one. And it's usually discovered as an incidental finding due either to one of the emergency complications, such as a sudden rupture, or as a result of routine screening. However, up to 30% of asymptomatic AAAs can be picked up as a pulsatile expansive mass during an abdominal assessment. That picks up on a quite an important point that I want to just very briefly cover. We all know about pulsatile mass. An aneurysm will present as a pulsatile expansile mass. Just bear in mind that particularly for patients who are quite thin or quite small, you may actually be able to see or feel the normal aorta, especially when the patient's lying flat on their back. So the presence of a, a pulsatile mass in and of itself does not necessarily mean that the patient has got an aneurysm, but a pulsatile expansive mass on palpation uh, is definitely a very big red flag. Yeah, I agree. There's there's lots of patients on there um, that have the you know BMI of a stick that you can see their aorta pulsating away when uh, you're you've got their top off to for an assessment or something like that. But yes, expansile mass is important to to bear in mind. So then the diagnosis of a AAA when it's ruptured should be considered for all patients who are over fifty presenting with abdominal or back pain plus hypotension or in patients with a known AAA, so a pre-existing abdominal aortic aneurysm, if they're presenting with abdominal or back pain and hypertension or a collapse. Yeah, ni nice uh, guidelines go so far as to say that actually we should consider ruptured AAA in people with new abdominal and or back pain with cardiovascular collapse or loss of consciousness as well. In those patients, so patients that meet the age criteria and the risk factors with abdominal back pain and hypertension, or certainly patients with a known AAA with pain and hypertension, that, that means 
probably taking them to a vascular centre if we think we can get there and bypassing them to to a vascular centre because a lot of these patients will talk about it more in depth when it comes to treatment but taking these patients to a normal general hospital that doesn't have the ability to fix it is is probably less than ideal we need to be taking them straight to somewhere that's that that offers definitive care yeah i can categorically back that up as someone who obviously works in a dgh basically it's simple we don't have a vascular surgeon on call so if you bring that patient to us there is nothing we can do about it no amount of blood products are going to make a difference you know there's no one in a dgh that's going to be able to do things like interventional radiology or anything like that that's going to make a difference it 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 has to be with a surgeon so you are completely right josh we should be bypassing and going to other other specialist centers because remember these specialist centers are still likely going to have a general surgeon so if we get to the emergency department of the other center and it turns out it's actually a ruptured viscous or it's something else then the general surgeons can operate there and that's not going to kill someone as quick as a vascular insult so i think it's really important that paramedics feel really comfortable to bypass and i know a lot of trusts now do have a vascular bypass policy in place are we saying then that even patients who are potentially peri-arrest should be bypassed to a vascular center? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, so we're, we're jumping the gun a little bit, but uh, yeah, it is difficult and it's going to be answered for, you, you're, you're going to have to make that call for each individual situation. So there's my get out of jail free card. But uh, I guess I'd, I'd put it, you know, you can take them, you can run them to the nearest hospital and they might be able to resuscitate them and they might be able to resuscitate them with blood. But you're then committing that patient to waiting for another ambulance to transfer them and potentially another ambulance waiting for an anaesthetist who's qualified for inter-hospital transfers to transfer them. And we all know the modern ambulance service, there might be 20 ambulances outside in the queue, but that doesn't mean that EOC is going to allow uh, the next crew that comes clear to, to to transfer that patient, regardless of how poorly you say they are, to the call handler. So we, I think, as we've said before, not all hospitals are the same. And not all hospitals are the same for patients with very specialist conditions. And this is a very, both of these, uh, both dissection and ruptured AAA are very specialist conditions. So if we can get there and it might be a very uncomfortable journey and, and speaking as somebody who has done this uncomfortable journey a number of times, it is the right call. In fact, I recall one job, I was called to back up a crew who were struggling with a patient's blood pressure so much. And the the paramedic that I was backing up and supporting wanted to pit stop at the nearest hospital, which was not a vascular centre. And essentially what happened is we pulled up outside, the doctor jumped on as a result of the atmist, got a brief handover and said, if you are if you think this is a AAA, I can do nothing for this patient. So you might as well carry on to the next hospital because all I'm going to do is an ultrasound scan, maybe a CT and call you guys back if you're right. So they jumped out and we carried on to the to the vascular centre. So, and arguably wasted 10 minutes in the process. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah no, that's a really good point, Josh. And actually, you're, you're, you've hit the nail on the head, I think, with the discussion about the, you know, the pressures in the modern ambulance service. It's, it's very unlikely to be a 10, 15 minute delay. You know, you could be talking a, a fairly significant delay in, in this day and age. And just to muddy the waters a little bit more in terms of that decision to to bypass or not to bypass 
the NICE guidelines are also fairly clear that there is no evidence at all that a single symptom, sign or prognostication or risk assessment tool can be used to determine if a suspected AAA should be transferred to a regional vascular centre. So even the NICE guidelines aren't sure. And I think the takeaway point from that, like you said, Josh, is that it is very patient specific. But do bear in mind that not every hospital is the same and you might be leading the patient potentially to a worse outcome by taking them somewhere that doesn't have the ability to to treat them. I would second Josh's point with my own experience on several occasions, especially one particular job I remember where I was working on a car out of area that I'm not familiar with. And I um, we loaded the patient onto an ambulance who'd collapsed and was hypertensive with severe abdominal pain. I pre-alerted the nearest ED, which I thought had a vascular centre, and the consultant came on the phone and said, do you think this is a AAA? And I said, yep, that's my most likely differential. And they said, we don't have vascular, so you need to bypass and go to this hospital. And actually, I had to drive past two A&E front doors in order to get to a vascular centre, and it was an hour and 20-minute blue light run. It wasn't comfortable, but the patient did get there. Unfortunately, they still passed away before they could get to theatre. But that patient would have had no chance if we'd stopped at the previous two. So I think it's really important. The only thing I would bounce off of is hopefully in the future, you were saying, Alex, about no diagnostic tests. I'm really hoping that in the future there might be a role for point of care ultrasound. I don't know, Josh, whether you, you thought about that. But yeah, there might be some play for that as a diagnostic tool to to move people on or 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 diagnose it a bit more accurately pre-hospital but there's a little bit of talk either way about that uh yeah i mean that's a massive rabbit hole we can jump down i I think um once you start talking about that there are certain well yeah yeah i'm just going to leave that as that's a massive rabbit hole we can jump down and i think one of the other points that probably factor into most paramedics decision is the embarrassment factor i suppose or the 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 concern that there might be pushback from bypassing a patient very long distances and then potentially being wrong because as we've said throughout this the the symptoms that we're talking about are reasonably non-specific and there's just as high a likelihood that this could be one of the other many differentials rather than a an aortic pathology and i just thought i'd share my experience that of all the patients that i have bypassed as far as i'm aware all the patients that i've i've bypassed to vascular centers and I'm like you, Simon. I think the area you were talking about earlier was my patch. We're talking 90 minute journeys as opposed to 30 minute journeys uh, or 45 minute journeys to bypass some of these patients. Probably about 75% of these patients were not the aortic pathology I thought they were. They were something else like an ischemic bowel or something like that, but didn't receive any pushback for it and it was still absolutely the right call and I would make the same call with the information that I had at the time. So you you might bypass them a long way and you might be wrong, but that doesn't mean it was the wrong call. I, I, I generally think that if you had documented in your paperwork, obviously after the job, a hypertensive patient with sudden onset of symptoms of, of, of abdominal pain or back pain and that you're lead differential is that it was a it was an aneurysm rupture i generally think that no one could not back you for that decision you have done what you believe to be in the best interest of your patient and got them to the place where you thought they would be best treated and i don't think anyone could challenge that 
No, and, and as someone who is involved in investigations for these type of incidents, you know, when when things do go uh, do go wrong as they as they sometimes do, I have to agree. I, I would I would back someone who had made that decision based on the information they have available and uh, and in the patient's best interest. I think it's you know if we bring it back to that statistic that we had somewhere near the start. 20% of these patients die before they even reach hospital and 50% of them die before they reach specialist care. And we can play a massive part in ensuring that they have the best possible chance of reaching that specialist care they need by being familiar with the presentation. And if we have a patient who we feel is presenting with an aortic, an acute aortic pathology or a rupture, that we are confident enough to make that decision and um, and bypass to a specialist centre. So now that we've covered those kind of treatment options and, and had a little discussion about um, about bypassing, I wanted to uh, I wanted to throw a couple of things at you guys, which which may or may not be uh, controversial, and just kind of see uh, see what you thought. So, firstly. Permissive hypertension for these acute aortic pathology patients. How do we feel about maintaining a, a map of 65 uh, millimeters of mercury? Yeah, so I guess it's reasonably dependent on how they're presenting. And you guys feel free to chime in and disagree with me on anything too outrageous that I'm saying now. But, um, you know, I, I, you've got to think about one, how they're presenting, and two, what you think the underlying aortic pathology is so for aortic dissection these are generally hypertensive patients aren't they and pre-surgery management is aimed at reducing that blood pressure to prevent the dissection from progressing further so patients will probably be started on a gtn infusion or beta blockers so generally these patients aren't going to be hypotensive requiring fluids unless things are really really bad like you've said earlier alex so if these patients are hypotensive, I guess our, our management for, for the most part is going to be reasonably the same, whether they're suffering an aortic dissection or we think they've got a ruptured AAA. So if it's a dissection, they're either going to be tamponading or they're filling that false lumen up with blood and they're becoming hypovolemic. They maybe have got a hemothorax, like you've said, Alex, or if it's a ruptured AAA, they're, they're bleeding somewhere into their abdomen. So I think it's entirely reasonable not to bang them full of fluids for the same reasons that we wouldn't want to do that in any of our trauma patients. So I think it's probably sensible to aim for a blood pressure at or around normotension. I think there's some animal trials out there that might suggest that preoperative fluid resuscitation aimed at a, a systolic of 80 to 100 might have better outcomes, but I don't think there's any randomised controlled trials or uh, any particular strong evidence coming from guidelines to necessarily support that. So I'm, I think probably what I do and, and what I tend to do when it comes to fluid resuscitating people in my day job is just to resuscitate for the GCS. So if we haven't got confounding neurological symptoms, then um, just to, to aim for a, a near enough normal GCS with our, with our fluid management. I'd agree with you completely, Josh. I think, yeah, a, aggressive fluid resuscitation isn't what we is not the aim of the game here. We don't want to make that bleeding worse, especially if we have partial hemorrhage or partial complications. You know, we don't want to make that worse. I think smashing full of salty water is not going to do anything. So a little bit of hypertension isn't awful. Maybe maintaining, as you said, some cerebral mentation is the is the is the goal. But I think the definitive option is get somewhere where we can do surgery. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I just wanted to make the point that I think it's worthwhile considering these not just as an aortic presentation uh, and a very sick patient, but also as a coagulopathy patient because they are bleeding quite severely. So it's worth considering warming. Probably not TXA. Um, it's probably not going to do a huge amount. And obviously, you're very, you know, as a paramedic, generally speaking, we're fairly bound by the specifics of the PGD anyway. But certainly in terms of uh, of, of warming, permissive hypotension and, um, you know, avoiding, as, as you said, Simon, avoiding pumping them full of salty water. Yeah, I definitely think the, the, the pre-hospital treatment here is the recognition and getting someone to the right place. And, you know, I, I always think that sometimes paramedics get a little bit disheartened when there's actually no interventions we can do, but that is such a significant decision and it's not an easy decision that that should be the focus here is identifying these patients and that they need a vascular service and get them there. As I said, that in itself is such a great decision and that's what we should be the focus of the treatment section, I feel. Yeah, agreed. And that takes real nuance as well. You know, if you if you get this call wrong, then potentially these patients are sitting in the wrong hospital or even worse, sitting in a hospital queue. They're, they're just going to die there, aren't they? So yeah, the, the ultimate treatment is getting this patient in front of the right surgeon and giving the correct hospital as much notice as possible to potentially call these people in uh and and uh, putting this on everybody else's radar who's involved with that patient's care so yeah i completely agree i suppose the other one to talk about the thing to talk about would be analgesia so analgesia is incredibly difficult in these patients realistically we've only got morphine available to us there may be some benefits there if they're particularly hypertensive that uh, some of the effects of morphine might lower that hypertension and uh, have some therapeutic benefits but realistically it's it's not going to touch this pain if they're in pain is it and yeah it's going to take so long to act yeah i i was going to um sort of come on to this actually as one of the pitfalls in terms of in terms of treatment of these patients is is failure to adequately treat the pain like you say we are very limited in uh, or generally speaking very limited in the uh, pain management options that we have um but i think we are probably doing more harm to the patient by failing to treat their pain than we are by being overly cautious, particularly with with opiates. Um, I I just I, I think it's uh, it's really important that we that we do recognise the amount of pain that the patient is in and and actually do something do something to treat it. I guess to play devil's advocate there, you, you have to be careful not to induce hypotension. So we need to be proportionate and careful with how we're given the opiates. But uh, yeah, th this that's identified throughout most of the literature that I've read as a, an issue in these patients is, is people failing to adequately analyze them. One, because it's very difficult to do, but two, because people are concerned about uh, knocking off their blood pressure. So yeah, we have to be careful either way, but we, we definitely need to try and address the, um, the, the, the patient's pains. What, what, what's people's thoughts on Entinox? I think rocks if you've got it. I think they're all right. Most trusts have got some IV paracetamol now as well, which I know, you know, especially if given too quick, can lower blood pressure. But um, obviously, it's another another option we can consider. There's there's lots of stuff we can think about. Nice I smooth was, journey as well in the ambulance. Yeah, I I would say give as much. I'm I'm hesitant to say it this way, but give as much as you can get away with without 
overly adversely affecting the patient because as i say i think it's probably more more harmful to avoid treating the pain in terms of their you know their stress and the uh, the resultant physiological effects that that will have which i think brings us quite nicely on to the last little bit i wanted to cover just in terms of in terms of pitfalls so i think really big pitfall for both of these pathologies really is insufficient history i want to really make that point the history of the condition and the patient's individual and family history is a hugely important factor in assessing these patients and don't lower your threshold of suspicion because either the symptoms have resolved or reduced or because they're absent of things such as a bp differential if you have that suspicion you've got that suspicion for a reason and i think this is one of those cases where if your gut is telling you something it's something you should cogitate more on and and perhaps give it a little bit more thought rather than just dismissing it. My final pitfall that I would like to chip in with is renal colic. So there is a, a lot of red flag advice surrounding diagnosing renal colic in patients over the age of 55. I think that if someone gets the sudden onset pain of renal colic, it can very much be a mimic of a ruptured AAA. So I think be very careful diagnosing renal colic in someone over the age of 55 without some sort of imaging. So either a CT or, or an ultrasound, which obviously then equates to them going somewhere else or bringing the skill to them to have it done which is going to be unlikely possible in most services so yeah i think renal colic in older people just 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 be careful of that one yeah i I wanted to talk about renal colic in another episode at some point but i i would go so far as to say that a first presentation of renal colic particularly in as you say in someone over 50 but i i would have a very low threshold for conveyance of a patient with a a first presentation of renal colic that doesn't necessarily mean bypassing those patients to the vascular center if renal colic is your high suspicion then going for a confirmatory ctkub or ultrasound is is at your nearest general hospital is entirely reasonable that 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 tends to be my practice in my dgh to be honest if i have a high suspicion someone over the age of 55 is is renal colic then i will just slide a uh, an ultrasound probe over their abdomen and their aorta just to just to give myself a little bit of um reassurance really that it's not an aneurysm i'm relatively happy with that my consultants are relatively happy with that so that's just something that we do i think if you have a high suspicion that it's the other way around then yeah bypass if or or treat that if if it's not then just rule it out there's an element of the fact that we're we're all coming from from an emergency background here as well isn't there if, if we had someone from primary care they might feel a bit different but yeah i think that's that's definitely safe practice and, and that's what i do right Well, that was another long one, so let's summarise. So we've talked a lot about dissection and aortic aneurysm rupture today. Let's just remember they are different pathologies and they do present differently. Aortic dissection is a tear in the endothelial layer of the aorta. So the tunica intima has been separated away from the media of the aorta and they can generally present in the aortic arch but they can progress right down the length of the aorta. Triple A's abdominal aortic aneurysms generally are incidental findings 
but they can present to us as ruptures, in which case these patients are going to be in severe pain and likely hypotensive. The key to differentiating these two pathologies lies in the history. So we need to examine our patient for those risk factors we've discussed, look at their family history and whether or not there's anybody who's had aortic pathologies in the past, as well as any of the individual connective tissue disorders that might predispose them to one of these two aortic pathologies. Aortic dissections are generally very acute, sudden onset, severe pains, normally presenting in the chest, but this can be in the back or even in the abdomen. They're maximal at onset and incredibly sudden, often so much that the patient can describe exactly what they were doing at the point the pain started. AAA rupture generally will present in the abdomen, so it will present, generally present with abdominal discomfort or back pain. And these patients will generally be hypotensive, whereas a dissection could be hyper or hypotensive, dependent on which aspects of the anatomy are involved. Additionally, dissections can present with complicating symptoms, including ECG changes, neurological changes, both centrally and peripherally. Our treatment for these patients is really limited, but the most influential thing that we can do is recognize the patients with a high likelihood of one of these pathologies and bypass them to the correct hospital that's a vascular center capable of putting that patient in front of a vascular surgeon in a timely manner. So that's all for this month. Thanks very much for listening. As always, there's going to be an article with a write-up of what we've talked about in this episode. I think it would probably be really useful to go and navigate there to have a look at some of the videos and the pictures that are really helpful to understand what we've been talking about, particularly the different aspects of anatomy that are involved with these two pathologies. There you can get our whole back catalogue of previous general broadcasts and you can get in contact with the podcast by emailing us at generalbroadcastpodcast at outlook.com and it's really helpful if you can give us five stars and leave us a written review on our apple itunes page that really helps to increase our exposure and get our podcasts out to more people which means we can keep making free cpd for you guys and i just want to say thank you for those of you that have either left a review for us or got in touch with us either over email or, or on twitter just to say how impactful the podcasts have been and how what we've been putting out has supported your studies and your patient care. It's been really lovely to, to hear and it really makes all of the work that we're putting in worthwhile. So thank you so much for letting us know that you've enjoyed the podcast. But that's all for us this week. So thanks very much and join us again next month.